I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to All Things Policy. I am Manoj Keval Ramani, and today I have with me my colleagues Pranay Kotasthane and Aditya Ramanathan, and we're going to be discussing something that's been talked about in sort of media for the last uh, more than a few years, at least since sort of Trump's election in the U.S. The idea that the U.S. Uh, aided and abetted China's rise as a great power, uh, and of course, in Trump's view, that was done foolishly. Uh, and there's been so much conversation about. Uh, you know how the engagement policy was a failure. The U.S. failed to anticipate China's uh, aggressive or even potentially malicious intents. Uh, and we're going to be talking about all of this in the context of a uh, book that my colleague Aditya says is the best IR book that he's read in the recent times. Uh, the book is Over the Horizon: Time, Uncertainty, and the Rise of Great Powers by David Edelstein. Um, so, Aditya, firstly, I want to come to you and ask you. Uh, why do you think this is the best book that you've read in recent times in IR? Ah, uh, well, uh, the boring answer would be that uh, you know it combines both uh, substantial theory and empirical study, uh, which is not all that easy in every IR book. And you come out of the book feeling like you've learned something or understood something, or uh, you feel like you've been challenged to rethink some of your assumptions. The more interesting answer, the more personal answer, is that it uh, it answered something or attempted to answer something that's been a puzzle in my mind as well, uh, which is why did the U.S. aid and abet the rise of China? Uh, was the U.S. just being foolish? Uh, you know, I, like a lot of other people in uh, IR and strategy, uh, I, you know, read John Mearsheimer fairly early, you know, the book Tragedy of Great Power Politics. And uh, Mearsheimer uh, very much in that book advocated that the U.S. should actually uh, limit the economic rise of China. And, uh, he has, you know, in, and in subsequent years, he basically said that the U.S. was misguided in its uh, approach towards China. And, uh, you know, this was because of, uh, you know, American commitment to liberal internationalism and so on. Uh, I was not myself entirely convinced by that argument. And I think this book uh, gave a very uh, gave a very interesting and fairly convincing explanation for why uh, cooperation occurs between existing powers and rising powers. So he talks about a framework where, you know, uh, time plays a role in terms of how uh, existing great powers and rising power things uh, approach each other. And he gives you, gives certain examples, right? I mean, I, if I was reading correctly, he gives four examples uh, of where, so we commonly assume that there would be, uh, conflict would be inevitable uh, and uh, the incumbent would want to uh, stem the rise, uh, stymie the rise of a, you know, rising power. Uh, yet he talks about different examples where that's not really the case, right? Aditya, could you tell us a little bit about the examples that he cites? Sure, I will. And, uh, you know, the case, the case studies that he provides are uh, very well done, um, uh, you know, by the standards of political science. It's uh, very well researched, it's nuanced. Uh, but before I get to those case studies, you know, l let me just try and explain what he means when he talks about time horizons. Uh, Edelstein makes the case that... Uh, we, you know, because there is uncertainty about the future, a state 
uh, does not know exactly how to respond to a rising power. So uh, if you ask John Mearsheimer, he, you know, in 2001, uh, when he argued in the book, Tragedy of Great Power Politics, that, you know, China was going to be the next major challenge to the United States, he was making that assumption that it would be so. On the other hand, in 2001, it was not necessarily evident. You know, you did not know if the Chinese uh, Communist Party and its regime would last. Uh, you did not know if uh, China would take a more liberal direction, if its economic rise would falter. All of these things, there, were great uns- there was great uncertainty about the future. Now, if you were to prepare for the worst every time, it's going to be expensive. It might be wasteful. On the other hand, if you were to try and gauge the intentions of the other state and understand what it what it really wants, you might not necessarily prepare for the worst. The other thing is that thinking about the future requires a long-term horizon. But uh, if China is focused on the long-term, uh, you know, as the rising state, it has an interest in, you know, as Teng Xiaoping said, uh, hiding your capabilities and biding your time. It has an interest in reassuring existing powers that it does not pose a threat, uh, that it can be incorporated into the existing world system and so on. And and uh, it, I think there is a fair amount of evidence that in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, China was doing pretty much that. It was providing reassurance to the United States. And uh, on the other hand, the United States was looking at it from a more short-term perspective. They will, uh, from their perspective, since we they didn't know exactly how ch- uh, China's rise was going to pan out, uh, in the short term, it offered them opportunities uh, to make money, to have t- uh, trade with China. And, you know, that, that trade is, is huge. It's, it's transformed America's own economy. It's benefited America's consumers massively. Uh, so there was a very clear self-interest for the United States to engage China, uh, before it was clear exactly what the rise of China would mean. And, you know, so this, this in a sense, answers the, the, the basic question that we had, which is, you know, in, in, uh, until the end of the Cold War, uh, the, U- the U.S. had a reason to engage with China. Uh, you know, from the Sino-Soviet split in 1969 to about 1991, China acted as a balancer against the Soviet Union. Once the Soviet Union had fallen... Using Mearsheimer's model, you would have uh, begun to balance against China. On the other hand, because you did not know what China's prospects were, uh, it made sense to hedge and seek sh- and seek pragmatic short-term benefits. Now, the four case studies that he talks about, uh, they're, they're quite interesting. The first one is he starts in the 19th century, looking at uh, Germany under Otto von Bismarck uh, starting in 1871, once the German Empire had been consolidated. Germany, you know... Uh, sat right in the middle of Europe. You know, it, its constant concern was a two-front war from both the East and the West. And it was surrounded by enemies or potential enemies. So it made sense for the Germans to basically entangle all these countries in a series of alliances, coalitions, so that Germany does not have to face threats from multiple fronts simultaneously. And, you know, I'm not going to go into the details of this, but uh, Bismarck's policies uh, really helped Germany uh, stabilize relations with these countries. Uh, He continued cultivating the Russians and even with uh, Germany's traditional enemy, France, he found uh, avenues of short-term cooperation. Uh, You know, just like how, you know, we see the US seeking short-term cooperation with China, he sought uh, short-term cooperation with the French. He would, for, for instance, provide diplomatic backing to France's uh, imperial adventures. So this made a lot of sense for Germany uh, as it continued to rise, as it continued to consolidate its power. Uh, of course, uh, after 1890, Bismarck was uh, out of power. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm took over. Now, I'm not sure that this is, you know, this is entirely based on what personalities do. But, you know, by then, 
Germany's strategic situation had changed and uh, eventually it did go to war in 1914. The second case study uh, that uh, Edelstein provides is again in the late 19th century and it may actually be the most interesting of all of them uh, because this is about a peaceful power transition. We, we are often told that these peaceful power transitions are fairly rare and that is true. But perhaps the most remarkable peaceful uh, power transition in modern history is the one in the late 19th century and early 20th century where uh, power transitioned from uh, Great Britain to, to the United States. Uh, and this was not necessarily something that was foreordained. Yes, it is true, uh, Edelstein agrees that, uh, you know, the idea of having common culture, shared ethnicity and so on did help in bringing the two sides closer together and did uh, allow the British to believe that the Americans had benign intentions. But really what drove this uh, peaceful transition was the fact that both sides were seeking uh, short-term benefits of their own. You know, while the Americans were enforcing the Monroe Doctrine and basically driving the British out of both North America and South America, the two countries also had found avenues of cooperation. Firstly, uh, the biggest threat, the biggest, most immediate threat at that time to the British was, of course, Germany. Secondly, for example, the U.S. went and took over the Philippines. Uh, The British were not necessarily all that concerned because from their perspective, uh, American trade policies are quite suited to their own. And so it made sense for Americans to control the Philippines rather than some other European power, which would likely be a rival. Similarly, in return, the uh, Americans gave support to the British over the Boer War. So, you know, there were avenues of short-term cooperation between the two countries that allowed them to, to, not, to not enter a face-off and, and allow for a peaceful transition. The third example that Edelstein provides is between the two world wars, uh, where again, Germany was found itself in that same difficult uh, strategic position and once again tried for a couple of decades uh, to balance off threats, to find avenues of short-term cooperation, most evidently with the Soviet Union, uh, until that system once again collapsed and you had the Second World War. And the fourth example is, of course, uh, the birth of the Cold War. Over here, Edelstein admits that, uh, you know, once you have a structural bipolar system, it's very difficult uh, for two countries to not engage in competition, to not engage in a rivalry. But uh, he does point out to some specific events, uh, the Berlin crisis, obviously, but also diplomatic goings on in both Turkey and Iran that changed American perceptions about rightly or wrongly, changed American perceptions about the Soviet Union and uh, led uh, to the Cold War. Yeah, so that's broadly the four examples that he gives. That's, that's fascinating. I think you've touched on so many interesting issues and I want to pick up some of these with Pranay. Pranay, firstly, let's, uh, you know, there's this a talk about personalities, there's talk about, uh, you know, this time horizon business and there's also talk about how, you know, structural changes can lead to certain different outcomes and how when power, when sort of a rising power and a great power, incumbent great powers find commonalities in certain senses, they may be able to work together better. So Pranay, let's apply this to, you know, and you've done this in your newsletter where you've tried to apply uh, this framework of uh, time horizon to the US-China rivalry. And Aditya spoke about how, you know, short-term perspectives probably led to cooperation uh, in the early parts of the 2000s. How does this sort of play out subsequently? And why do we, why are we where we are today based on this uh, framework? So before I get uh, started, Manoj, I just uh, want to thank Aditya for recommending this book, first of all, because it was uh, a good read. And I think... Uh, 
the important point here was and why i also liked the book was like aditya was saying we were talking about liberal internationalism of us and china's time and you know the post 2001 sort of partial competition where there was competition plus cooperation happening and i was always wondering why was in spite of us's intellectual horsepower why weren't they able to look at uh, this incoming uh, superpowers rise much earlier you know india has been going on for about this for a long time and i was searching for answers which were particularistic to the us scenario right yeah liberal internationalism they they wanted china to change they that's why they brought in wto etc but the fascinating part about this book was it put things into perspective and made me realize that that's not the case that it is specific to us in fact it is the default case that uh, generally existing great powers end up cooperating with an uh, uh, and actually aiding and abetting their own rival instead of actually step, uh, preventing their rise so that's the default case not an exception so that was what i was uh, fascinated about now let's look at it from the current side right so uh, let me just put uh, this framework in perspective so that we can understand this better so it's a 2 by 2 and it's difficult to explain it on an audio but yeah. you can try okay so just imagine there are uh, 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 each of the countries have can have time horizons okay time horizons essentially mean that uh, whether they are focused on the now and let's say 2 3 years down the line or whether their vision is uh, 20 30 years Uh, down the line that would be a long time horizon now if you look at two powers now we are only looking at a diet not making bringing all the powers in the picture but just look at two powers one is an existing great power one is an emerging great power now you will have uh, two time horizons for both of them so basically you will end up with four scenarios where there will be short short term horizons there will be long short short long and long long right there will be like four combinations now this is what's interesting uh, so what he says is that when uh, a country the existing uh, when a rising superpower is focused on the long term Okay, that means they are not uh, upsetting the apple cart in the short term. They are hiding their capabilities, biding their time, kind of more. And when that happens, it actually is more likely that the uh, existing superpower will focus on the short term. Okay, so they will more look at what can happen now and then. Are there opportunities for cooperation? Are there opportunities for short-term gains? So this is an interesting part. That is what exists, and conditions are conducive for cooperation. Now, this is what I guess was happening between US and China through the eighties, nineties, and the two thousands. because this was the time when when china was sort of adopting this uh, hida cap- capacities by the time famously under deng xiaoping so they were not uh, uh, taking on confronting us frontally right so this sort of also aided uh, thinking in the us to look at the short term and not look at china as this long term adversary yeah it might happen but it is uncertain so let's put that on the back burner and focus on what we can do in the next 10 5 years and that led to this us focusing on the short term and there were conditions conducive for cooperation right so this is precisely what happened between us and prc after the sino soviet split now this benefited both the countries and probably we can say it benefited 
benefited China more. Uh, so that is what happened. One. Uh, now look at the second phase. Okay, by 2010, sort of uh, China's time horizon it moved from this long-term focus to a short-term focus because it was ready to uh, uh, confront a lot of its neighbors. It uh, sort of took up uh, a lot of uh, south china sea disputes so you had vietnam japan philippines all those things coming up so it sort of signaled china's time horizons changing and it was focusing on what can it do in the next 4 5 years rather than focusing on the next 15 20 years right so when that happened you had both the existing power and a uh, rising power focusing on the short term right so uh, because at by that time there was still after effects of 911 so us strategic thinking was still you know muddled up between whether it should focus on afghanistan iraq uh, and or whether it should focus on china so there was a mixture of skirmishes and pragmatic cooperation which this framework also says now look at the third scenario which is where we are now and that i guess i would roughly put it starting 2016 where uh, both Ch- where china is looking at the short term horizon it continues to do so like it did after 2010 but this realization that you china is now uh, continuing its arrogance against its neighbors the bri project and its attempts at influencing politics in countries such as australia also it rap- rapid build up of technological power all those things combined to make uh, an impression and change the us's time horizon and it basically move to a long term horizon so when an existing power focuses on a long term horizon and a, a current and a rising power is actually focused on doing things now quickly uh, uh, gaining power even if it ruffles the feathers of others you actually have an increased possibility of a preventive war that is what this framework says so this is where i guess we are in now where us is trying to take on china in various domains it's not necessarily a war using force in the sense of armed forces alone but it's a scenario where us is sort of confronting prc directly provocatively on many domains such as trade and technology so that's where i guess i would put it uh, manoj what do you think so i think this is really interesting because it's slightly it's quite counterintuitive right i mean the idea that uh, you know uh, the, the notion that's commonly been ascribed to the chinese is that you know they think long term uh, and just rightly like you said you know that the criticism of american foreign policy is that because it, it thought short term uh, in the late 90s and the early 2000s uh, you know and that's the criticism that trump has sort of picked up on and the idea that the chinese are today thinking short term uh, i mean i would agree with that also i mean what they have done uh, in the south china sea what they have done in hong kong particularly in the last one year tells you that uh, whether they see it as a short term window of opportunity to act or whether they see it as you know the possibility of a long term threat and therefore you you know put up your defenses as strong as you can uh, uh, is possibly what they are doing um, the other interesting thing for me is that uh from the chinese perspective i mean all of us have written this right that what they've done right now over the last 3 4 years particularly has been damaging to their own long term prospects because they have quickened uh, us thinking towards uh this rivalry you know the us approach towards this rivalry um and the argument that the chinese need to understand and alter their behavior over a period of time i presume what my sense is what they're doing right now is that they're trying to figure out 
what are the advantages that within this short window of opportunity and i don't know how how much how they perceive when this window of opportunity will close because if you listen to what xi jinping is still saying he's saying that they will continue to act provocatively because they believe this window of opportunity still exists and it is soon to close uh but whenever it potentially in their perception closes or uh, whatever that means and i don't see that could mean as one moment but there could be an event that could imply the closing of that window that's when they will seek to uh, establish uh, status quo and behavior because if you listen to the messaging that's coming out from beijing it is while they're doing certain things they're also talking to the us about uh, you must have a long term view you must have a long term view uh you know their constant messaging to the us uh, apart from whatever they may be saying at the foreign ministry press conferences arguing with the us about specific incidents um the general view is that the us must take a long term perspective of ties with china and the long term perspective would then bring you back to uh, negotiation which is again runs counter to this particular framework right this particular framework says yeah in this framework it would mean that long term they would actually prevent the rise yeah. of china but i guess long term is always seen in a very positive mode uh, in a in a common parlance yeah. right yeah exactly uh, so i presume that is what they are trying to do and again it would be fascinating to see what incident event uh, prompts them or, or perhaps there will be multiple which at different levels uh, you know with different countries so for example perhaps the incident that's happening with india right now in eastern ladakh if it worsens or if it stabilizes from here onwards uh, then we would probably see a year and a half from now this event as one of the sort of defining things that led to the prc establishing a new status quo with india whatever that status quo may be and however it eventually comes out something akin to sort of 1988 or if it worsens from here on then whatever the outcome of that worsening is would be the new status quo whether it's peaceful or whether it's more assertive and you know friction uh, with, with greater friction um and likewise there could be multiple others right something with regard to uh, hong kong differently something in the south china sea something with regard to taiwan who knows um, but i presume that's because if you see the messaging that's coming out from there they're still seeing this as a short term window of opportunity which again contradicts this framework that they're seeing it as a short term window to do assertive things as opposed to look at cooperation uh and in the long term is what they're looking at is cooperation potentially once this window closes um so again which runs counter to this into uh, to this framework uh, which probably aditya brings me to some of the criticism that you had of the framework right i mean the idea that uh, personalities could possibly play a role in all of this right yeah uh, so you know uh, it, this the problem with any the sh- limitation with any such political science work is that you know if it is not focused on personalities for example uh, it 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 may not necessarily account for what happens when you have a leader who, who a specific leader who has a uh, short term uh incentives you know it sees the uh, state as a monolith whereas uh, obviously we we know that you know there are government actors bureaucratic actors uh and so on so you know a leader may not necessarily have the same interest as as the state and so it, there might be good reason for uh, for a leader to do something that is not, uh, you know not necessarily in the interest of his own state or her own state but uh, and so and so might and so you know it's possible for such a person to engage in short termism uh, the other if i would add uh, yeah. aditya just to uh, basically the short termism uh, of 
a leader might be different from a short-termism of a state. That's the sort of difference I would put. So, for example, this framework says that uh, counter to this idea that statesmen or stateswomen uh, actually think long-term and that's why they will be more peaceful. This framework actually says that's not true because you will, uh, along, if, you are, if an existing power is looking long-term, it is going to actually stop the rise of a rising power uh, much earlier. But uh, so uh, what Edelstein is saying that actually if you focus on short term, there are more chances of cooperation because you will end up looking at uh, the opportunities gains now and then. But the problem I have with that is that's not necessarily the case because if you have uh, the short termism thinking of one leader, if they are only thinking about their own family or their own party or their own electoral outcomes, that might be very different from the short-termism of their state. So they might actually end up uh, confronting the other power for their own electoral gains rather than looking at the time horizon of the state. So you might have short-term confrontation rather than short-term cooperation as this framework would argue. Yeah, that's very well summarized. Uh, I mean, the only other minor criticism I'd have is he does uh, go on about, uh, you know, he, he tries to make the case that buck passing, free riding behavior doesn't really exist. Free riding behavior is, you know, hey, I'll let you balance against China. I'll let you spend blood and treasure. I'll, I'll just chill in the background. He's saying that doesn't really happen, doesn't make sense. I'm not sure that that's convincing, but where I think he's correct is that, uh, you know, uh, buck passing can explain the absence of competition, but it can't explain the presence of cooperation. So, you know, why do, why do these so-called bug-passing states cooperate? The reason they cooperate is because, uh, as he points out, uh, they're seeking that that short-term, uh, they're, they're seeking short-term benefits in a very pragmatic way. Uh, you know, there's one more thing about the book, uh, which, which is, I think, something we should talk about, uh, which is that he brings in intentions in a big way. Uh, you know, other realist scholars have also done that, uh, you know, Stephen Walt in The Origin of Alliances. And, but I think that's the big difference with Mearsheimer. So what he's saying is it's not just the capabilities that matter, but also the perceived intentions of another state. And both in his theory and his case studies, I think he makes a fairly good case of that. And there's another interesting concept that he brings up uh, about intentions, you know, which is how does a state gauge the intentions of another state? And he brings up this idea of a diplomatic litmus test. Uh, so, you know, these would be diplomatic encounters, diplomatic tests that you would engineer in order to gauge what the other state really wants. Now, obviously, there are problems here. First of all, the other state, if the other state doesn't know it's being tested, uh, it may not realize the consequences of what it's doing. Secondly, if it knows it's being tested, it can game you. So I mean, it's a diplomatic litmus test is not necessarily perfect. But I think uh, that even even in recent years, you, you see examples of something that look like that. You know, uh, the permanent court of arbitration ruling in the South China Sea, for example, or even India's bid uh, to enter the nuclear suppliers group are, I think, diplomatic events that serve as litmus tests to gauge the intentions of another country and perhaps convince uh, enough members of your own elite, a decision-making elite, that, you know, this is a long-term problem that we have to deal with. Yeah, thanks, uh, Aditya. Actually, uh, what you said is uh, very interesting that, uh, you know, it's not just power that matters in this framework. What they're saying is three things matter and actually empirically end up changing the attitude of the existing power to the relative to the rising power one is of course power the second one is perceived intentions and the third one is time horizon so it's like a function of these three variables yeah. 
rather than power alone as offensive realists would argue so that's interesting now i had a question uh, manoj related to the current scenario what i found interesting in this framework was that like you were uh, mentioning this current preventive war scenario that which is highly likely now with us looking at long term horizon china looking at short term horizon the interesting part was when you put this as a 2 by 2 it says that you know that is not inevitable you can actually move to the other three quadrants as well right so if there is a rethink in prc's approach like you were saying uh, there a shift to either of those three remaining three quadrants is possible now i want to ask you with xi jinping at the helm do you think it looks likely Uh, that there might be a shift there i mean it looks terribly unlikely the everything that uh, has happened over the last 6 7 years ever since he's taken charge is essentially greater securitization of china's uh, domestic and foreign policy right everything uh, his perception has been driven by uh, the sense of in some ways siege which mixes with the sense of opportunity um, and i think that creates a you know that percolates down across the bureaucracy across the military across different branches of uh, the party and the state and that to reverse that um you again need something which is i mean either you need the leader himself to make this remarkable turn around which uh, appears extremely unlikely because, and to then sort of again percolate that down the system is going to be extremely difficult in a long term process it's not going to be an easy or peaceful process as china's history itself tells us um mm. and i don't see him doing that because i think he views the world in a far more different view different sense than say his predecessors did his world view is that and i think what's happened in the last couple of years with the us uh, has cemented that i mean if forget even couple of years just the last 6 8 months the change in american approach in response to in many ways what china has done put in some ways ideology at the center of this competition with china i mean every every speech that's come out of a senior uh, american official over the last 6 months tells you that they see the they see this competition with china increasingly from an ideological perspective yet there is a desire to find some sort of a cooperative framework towards the end of it because uh, and i think that's not necessarily driven out of any uh, that's driven out of a sense of maybe to not engage in conflict because conflict would be extremely costly but also because of the deep economic linkages so you will terrible you will hurt yourself significantly and i think to avoid that i think if that sense of ideological conflict is what will further reinforce in the prc and under she particularly the sense of siege and that then sort of continues to percolate down and therefore i don't see that china is sort of self going to self reflect is going to uh, you know alter its approaches uh, i mean if there was ever a time for this one would have presumed it was happening in 2000 in 2018 and 2019 when xi jinping started to open up this sort of strands of cooperation with india with japan uh, you know his sort of historic summit with abe the informal summit with modi um, that told you that they were trying to do something like that you know realizing and therefore uh, shifting a little bit yet what's happened in the last in this year itself tells you that's not really working out right i mean i mean imagine right in the entire time this year dis- despite everything that's happened uh, hmm. modi and xi jinping have not had a single conversation uh, hmm. abe is now gone you have a new japanese leader 
uh, it's going to we're still waiting to see how that plays out but i don't recall i think maybe abhi and xi jinping also have not had did not have a single conversation um, uh, perhaps they might have had one i'm not i'm not sure but in comparison china's approach to europe has been far greater so i don't see that he is also looking at uh, creating what aditya also referenced i was reading aditya's work that he talked about creating that sense of uncertainty within the us uh, to me today both sides have far greater certainty that they are locked in some sort of an ideological some sort of a cold war if not some sort of they're locked in some sort of confrontation and that yeah. is going to perpetrate mm-hmm. i don't see xi jinping sort of uh, pivoting uh, and changing all of that yeah i i agree manoj even i feel so in the sense that uh, there are two like two orders of effects here right so if you look at 80s and 90s the scenario we were in was according to this framework that us was looking at the short term horizon and china was looking at the long term horizon and now what we are saying is it is in the exactly opposite camp right so where china is looking at short term horizon and because china is looking at short term horizon us is looking at long term horizon so even if say there was a power transition magically in beijing and there was another leader who is actually moving back from the short term focus to long term it also needs a second order effect for us to also move its focus from a long term horizon which has now happened over the last 7 8 years to again change and go back to the old time so uh, that looks unlikely like one of these things can change but for both to happen and for us to go back to the 80s and 90s era looks slightly unlikely so maybe even if a power transition happens there will be this mixture of cooperation and competition uh, but it looks unlikely that we'll have you know that era where us was aiding and abetting china yes Yeah, yeah, I think that era is uh, long past us. I think we are now. I mean, I think the best case outcome can be where again, uh, you know, both sides look at in as per this framework, both sides look at sh- uh, short term, but uh, sort of short term horizons, but also in the context of uh, say avoiding conflict, sort of avoiding moving towards conflict, and that's really tricky. uh because there is now structural rivalry that's developed and i think that is going to be very difficult to sort of walk back from aditya any last thoughts uh not really except that uh, we should you know i think it's fairly evident that india's also fits into the mold of an existing power while it might be a rising power in its own right it is uh, losing relative power in uh, you know relation to china and so it, it's not surprising that india's own time horizons are lengthening it's interesting i mean would, would you see china behaving with india from based on this framework it has seen frameworks uh, behaving with india with a long term view as opposed to a short term view uh, whereas india again has periodically looked at china from a short term perspective uh, i think uh, it, i'm not sure about this but i think both might be looking at a long term perspective right now which is uh, you know when, when both countries are looking long term it's not necessarily uh, the best if you look at uh, if you look at the quadrant i mean when both countries look at the uh, long term it's uh, you know it's an increased possibility of hegemonic war okay with that sobering thought i think <laughs> we'll call it a day uh, thank you so much pranay thank you so much aditya this has been a fascinating conversation if you liked our show don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the ivm network you can tune into them on the ivm podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, 
If you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.